the cause of entry into reality is also the result of entry into reality. The cause of entry, entry into enlightenment is the result of entry into enlightenment. This is uh, taught in a work by a Sangha in the fourth century in his text called Summary of the Great Vehicle. So this is a summary of the great vehicle of the bodhisattvas. The six training methods of bodhisattvas are the cause of entry into enlightenment. And the effect of entry into enlightenment is the practice of these six training methods. Okay? Practicing giving, ethical discipline, and so on up to perfect wisdom, those six practices are the cause of entry into enlightenment. And the result when you, of entering into enlightenment is you practice those six methods. There's a difference between the way of practicing them before and after. Before, the methods are somewhat defiled because of not having yet entered into reality. So before we enter reality, we practice these methods perhaps with some attachment to them or ourselves or others. We practice them with some sense that enlightenment and these practices could be a little different. We practice them with expecting something, perhaps. We practice them feeling that the appearance of separation between ourselves and others is real. But if we practice them, we will enter reality and be disabused of these illusions of separation, disabused of these illusions of gain and loss. And when we are, we naturally practice these training methods. That's a summary of the Bodhisattva path. Asanga didn't say this, but I'm saying um, that for me, the practice of zazen in this school is the practice of these six perfections. So you can also say that the cause of entry into reality is the zazen of this school, and the effect is the zazen of this school. So it isn't that you practice zazen and enter reality and then retire. You continue the same practice after enlightenment as before, except that after it's somewhat purified of any kind of like concern about gain and loss, self and other. It's unhindered. And Meichu uh, uh, asked me what uh, a sangha's name in Chinese is, and I said, uh, without hindrance is, I think, what it means. In Sanskrit also, I think it means without hindrance, but actually I looked it up. It means without attachment. That's his name, without attachment. 
So this is a good, that was his name before he became uh, a practitioner of the great vehicle. So being without attachment is also applies to uh, the individual vehicle practice. In the process of looking up his name, I also found that Asanga's a name, you, if you have any little boys you want to name, you could name them Asanga. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's supposed to be for boys. That's the gender. And what it mean, what the translation of it was, uh, uh, this, of, the, of the Sanskrit Asanga, the translation was um, devoted, loving nature. Which uh, I think maybe that's what non-attachment means. Is that when you're not attached, you're naturally devoted to everything. And you, you have a, your loving nature is released when there's no attachment. Attachment confines and restricts. When you attach to the loving nature, it's kind of restricted or even strangled nearly to death. But maybe never to death. Maybe you cannot actually ever completely eliminate the loving nature of living beings. So the practice of the Six Perfections is to release the attachment so the loving nature can flow forth in the same practices which release the loving nature are the practice of the loving nature. Another thing I wanted to say is that these practices are often called the Six Perfections. And I wanted to say that for me, today I would say that these six perfections are practice methods, training methods for imperfect beings. And they help imperfect beings be completely imperfect. They help imperfect beings be authentically imperfect. Most imperfect beings shrink back a little bit. Sh uh, kind of like, what's the word? Shrink back. Uh, anyway, they're f most imperfect beings are afraid to be imperfect. Not to mention of being afraid to be totally imperfect. These methods, starting with giving, are uh, ways to thoroughly embrace being imperfect, which also means thoroughly embrace other imperfect beings and also thoroughly embrace all the suffering of imperfect beings. These are methods, they're also sometimes called the six transcendences, the six ways of going beyond. So again, there's play here between there are ways of totally embracing being stuck and attached and suffering. And by being totally immersed in suffering, realization of transcendence is there. But if we hold back from the suffering, we are slaves of it and perpetuate it. So if Giving is the first step in opening to suffering.
then the next step is once you open to it, that's not the end of the story. Once you open to it, then you have to be care, 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 careful of it. If you're not careful of suffering, if you're not careful of the causes of suffering, attachments, delusions, delusions lead to attachment, lead to suffering. So we embrace the suffering, then we get to the attachment, then we get to the delusion. And embracing the delusion completely, we kind of, we don't exactly say goodbye-bye to the delusion, we say hello illusion, and then we say hello reality. If you can't say hello to illusion, again, if you can't say hello to delusion, then you're uh, your then delusion has been successful with you. Delusion kind of wants you to not to welcome it, because if you don't welcome it, it's gotcha. I also uh, listening to the dedication this morning in service. Uh, it says, um, may we realize that in understanding our suffering is found the suffering of the world. May we together realize that in the peace of our true nature is found the peace of the world. So I just thought I might complement that by saying, when we realize when we realize that understanding the suffering of our, our own suffering, or you could also say, when we understand our own suffering, we understand that the suffering of the world is there. And when we understand our suffering and the suffering of the world, we realize our true nature. Our true nature is discovered in understanding suffering. Suffering, when you study it and understand it, when you embrace it with compassion, you see, oh, there's, I can't exactly see uh, that, the, I can't, maybe not be able to see that the attachment's causing the suffering, but the more carefully I look at the suffering, I see there's attachment there. And then I see the reason why there's attachment is because things look like that. And I've heard that the way that, that way that they look is an illusion. And when you look at and really compassionately embrace the suffering and the attachment and the delusion, then you're open to the non-attachment, or excuse me, the non-illusion, or the non-illusion? No, the fact that the illusion's illusion and nothing more, and then you open to non-attachment and freedom from suffering. But you have to start by immersing in the suffering, attachment, delusion. You have to do that if you wish to bring peace to the whole world.
someone told me that uh, she was able to ride the waves, the waves of pain and suffering pretty well. But she wished the waves would actually calm down or go away. And I said to her, bodhisattvas are not wishing for the waves to go away. They're wishing to ride the waves until everybody learns how to ride the waves. Until everybody learns how to ride the waves. Bodhisattvas are not trying to uh, go lie down in a swimming pool on a little mat. They're trying to learn how to ride the waves. They're trying to become excellent surfers and experience the beauty of being calm and upright in the midst of the waves of birth and death with all beings. They're not, uh, you know, they're not necessarily wanting the waves to be bigger, and they're not necessarily wanting them to be f smaller. But if they wish the waves to get bigger, that's just another wave for them to ride. If they wish the waves to be smaller, that's another wave which they want to ride. The boat, the ship of compassion, is not rowed over pure, calm waves. It's rowed in rough, in huge, in small waves in a polluted sea. Not only that, but as the ancient master said, it's, uh, it's futile for the disciples to put out a wooden duck or a wooden goose in the precipitous straits. Bodhisattvas, actually, along with all suffering beings, are actually living in precipitous straits. Sometimes the water is whiter than others, but birth and death is turbulent. In these precipitous straits, it's a wasted effort to put out a wooden goose. What this means, uh, what this refers to is that in China, they have rivers, and some of them are world-class whitewater rafting rivers. And they used to ride boats in the old days. Thousands of years ago, they used to ride boats down these rivers coming out of the Himalayas and other interesting locales. And they had a practice, the captains of the ship had a practice as they approached the rapids of putting a wooden duck out ahead of them and watching how the goose, the wooden goose, would go through the rapids. And then they would follow the goose. The goose would be their guide. But in Zen, in the Bodhisattva way, we don't put the goose out in front. We st we're in the boat, and we're using what's happening in the boat. We're dealing with what's happening in the boat. We're not looking ahead at the way to go. We're not watching how our teacher did it. We're watching how we're coping with it. We may have seen our teacher a few times, but then we have, when we grow up, we forget about the teacher. We forget about the examples, and we deal with what's happening now.
Uh, one thing that's happening now is I'm thinking of a story which I'd like to deal with. Now, this is a story uh, which is related to that boy, that good boy, who came from the family of people who made tea cakes and, and sold them to people. Eventually, he became abbot of this monastery called Dragon Pond Monastery. So they called him Dragon Pond. There was a, there was a monk, uh, a student of, of mm, the teachings of the great vehicle of bodhisattvas. And uh, we, we now call him Dushan, which means virtue mountain. And Dushan was a, uh, a noted scholar and teacher of, uh, particularly he was a teacher of the Diamond Sutra, Diamond Sutra of Perfect Wisdom. And he had a, a portable library of commentaries on the Diamond Sutra. You know, portable in the sense that he could, it, fa- it fit in his backpack. And he, he, uh, he taught at various monasteries, he taught this great, this great scripture, this diamond scripture of perfect wisdom. And he heard about that in the south, there were these Zen peoples who um, said that you could like see the nature of mind and become Buddha. And he didn't like that way of talking. He thought it was kind of like heretical. And he became kind of enraged about this. And he intended to go down south and debate these people and refute them and you know, put them out of business. So he, he, he went down to where the Zen people were supposed to be living. And uh, he was going through the mountains. And he came upon one of these cake stands where they sell this, you know, these refreshments, this dim sum. And there was a lady there selling these, uh, selling these cakes. I think sometimes they said an old lady, but anyway, a woman was selling cakes. And uh, he ordered some cakes to refresh his heart. And so, after ordering, the lady said, what's that in your backpack? And uh, she could tell he was a monk. He said, these are commentaries on the Diamond Sutra. I'm a scholar of the Diamond Sutra. By the way, his nickname was Diamond Joe. (laughs) In In New York, you have Diamond Jim, right? So they called him Diamond Joe. And uh, so the old lady said, oh, I've heard something about that Diamond Sutra. I heard there's a place where it says, past mind cannot be grasped or attained. Present mind cannot be grasped or attained. Future mind cannot be attained. Reverend Sir, I wondered, what mind are you going to use to eat these cakes? (laughs) 
and the, and the scholar monk was speechless. <laughs> and she said, well, you don't get any cakes. <laughs> I forgot to tell you. She says, if you can answer my question, I'll, I'll, I'll give you these cakes for free. If you can't, you have to go somewhere else to do business. And he couldn't answer, so he didn't receive the free cakes and had to go on. And I think she may have mentioned to him, uh, nearby here there is a place called Dragon Pond. Might you want to check it out? <laughs> um, when I read, not too long ago, I read the story about uh, Dragon Pond's background, and I thought, oh, he has his sisters out in the hills selling cakes, <laughs> testing people. If they pass, they can go about their business. If they don't, she, they send him to me. <laughs> so he went, he went to Dragon Pond. And when he arrived, when he, he, when he came into the, into, the, into the temple, Dragon Pond saw him and hid behind a screen. The Dragon Pond hid behind the screen. And... Uh, so Dushan comes in and he says out loud, I've long heard of Dragon Pond, but now that I'm here, there's no pond, and the dragon doesn't appear. And Dragon Pond stepped out and said, Now you have really arrived at Dragon Pond. Um, they hung out together, uh, I guess, for a while, and it became evening and became dark. And Dragon Pond said to Dishon, it's getting late. You should go rest. And Dishon went out of the teacher's room, opened the door, and stepped out and said, it's dark out here. And uh, Dragon Pond lit uh, a lantern, one of those paper lanterns, and gave it to him. And just as Dushan received the paper lantern, Dragon Pond blew it out, and he woke up. To the mind that enjoys refreshment, the pause that refreshes. And Dragon Pond said, what did you see? And Deshan said, from this day forward, I will never again doubt the words of the old masters. And the next day, uh, uh, Dragon Pond went up into the teaching hall and said to the monks, among you, there's a person whose teeth are like sword trees. Sword trees are from Buddhist mythology. You know, in hell, they have these sword trees, these trees that have, that have branches that are like swords. 
and the people in hell are like living in these sword trees. You know, it's kind of like a dangerous place to live. <laughs> and uh, he said his teeth are like sword trees and his mouth is like a bowl of blood. Striking him will he will strike striking him with a stick will not turn his head. In other words, this guy cannot be distracted. Someday he will go to a solitary peak and establish what I've said at that place. In other words, he'll establish these, uh, th this, these teeth that are like dragon uh, sword trees and this mouth is like a bowl of blood. What does that mean? It means he will be able to help people not be attached to their delusions. And he's going to do it in a very radical way. So then Dushan uh, went outside the hall and took his backpack out there and set all his commentaries on fire. The great scholar burned all his books and he said, all the mysterious Dharma teachings are but a speck of dust in the vast void. All the great affairs of the world are but a drop of water cast into a boundless, bottomless chasm. So he became this teacher who had this background of as a scholar. But also remembered that all these teachings are just like a speck of dust in the vast void. And he, he uh, the way he related to students from then on was to pretty strictly just push them into the void. If they brought any specks or, any t or you know, if they brought even a big pile <clears throat> of understanding or teaching, he would show them that this is just a speck of dust in the vast emptiness. <clears throat> so he's a pretty scary teacher. He's famous for saying to people, if you speak, you deserve 30 blows. If you don't, you deserve 30 blows. A lot of people copied him on that one later. But he became very radical. Very radical to help people, you know, let go of their attachments. And uh, he had a student, and his student, uh, he had a couple students. One was named 
Shrey Fung, and the other was named The Japanese name is Ganto. Ganto. And uh, Shrey Fung uh, had disciples that led to two of the, there were five houses of Zen in China. And from Lung Tan, Deshan, Shrey Fung came two of the five houses of Zen. So he, uh, this particular lineage was uh, very, very uh, fruitful, made us made us a very uh, special form of bodhisattva training. And I also, when I when I heard Deshan say this about all the great Dharma teachings are like a speck of dust, I thought of Saint Thomas Aquinas, the great the great doctor of the Catholic Church. He did all this study. He mastered and wrote all these commentaries. And then when he was quite old, he woke up. And he didn't do any more studies after that. And he said, all I have said, all I have written, all I have learned are like a piece of straw tossed into a vast void. However, both of these people did study a lot beforehand. <laughs> if you don't study, that probably just seems like a speck. But if you explore the vast riches of, of the intellect, the tremendous beauty of the human mind, then you have a chance to see that it's just a speck in vast emptiness. It's just our interpretation of something that's extremely vast, but we can't stand it, so we make it into beautiful teachings, beautiful stories, beautiful horrible stories, beautiful happy stories. We make it into a world but this whole world, with all its affairs, are just a little drop in the realm of reality, which is coming to us all the time, and we make it into this wonderful world, which is just a little drop in the world of reality, which is not a world. Reality does not, is not exhausted by a world. But reality allows itself to be made into a world so people can study it and practice compassion towards it. And by practicing compassion towards the world, you realize that this world and everything in it is just a little drop of water in a bottomless ocean. And then, what do you do? You continue the same practices that you've been doing towards this world. You thought it was a big, tough world, or a big, great world, or a big, interesting world, or whatever. You had various ideas about this world, and you practice compassion towards this world, and then you enter reality, and you realize this world is not nothing, and it's not something. It's just a little speck in what is, and what is is far beyond all worlds.
all ideas, all teachings that we've been using. And then, in that realm of reality, you continue to practice the same practices. You continue to practice giving and so on with this world, this vast world. I just happened to see a, somebody, a friend of mine said that the teachings of karma are offered by the Buddhas to uh, set us free from beliefs. You know, set us free from believing our stories, like our Buddhist stories or our man stories or woman stories or mother stories or daughter stories. Or the teachings of karma are to set us free from our beliefs and to, and to open us to the vast mystery of our life. And yet, they're often used and turned into a belief to explain away the mystery. So be careful of these teachings. Don't use them to explain away the mystery. Use them in a way to open you to the mystery. In other words, Forget about everything I told you. <laughs> we also said, chanted a little while ago, uh, quietly explore the farthest reaches of these causes and conditions. Where is that? Quietly explore the farthest reaches of these causes and conditions as this is the exact transmission of a verified Buddha. And when you quietly explore the farthest reaches of these causes and conditions of our practice together, of our life, you explore them, but don't try to figure them out. Explore the, the vast realm, the farthest reaches of causes and conditions. Explore them with compassion. This is what Buddhas do. They explore the realm of karma, karmic cause and effect. They explore it. But they do not recommend that you try to figure it out. Just be kind to it and you will become Buddha. This exploration of karmic cause and effect, this exploration of your mind, of your storytelling mind, <clears throat> exploring it to the farthest reaches. Don't try to figure out anything until you explore to the farthest reaches, which is going to be a while. <laughs> Just keep exploring. Just keep loving and being careful of this r infinite realm of karmic consciousness. And then you'll find out that this infinite realm of karmic consciousness is the exact transmission of the Buddhas. And that this infinite realm of karmic causation is a speck of dust in Buddha's mind. And then continue to explore the farthest reaches of causes and conditions. To deepen that realization and become more and more able to live <coughs> with all beings. To welcome all suffering.
Can I give this to you before it disappears in this book? So this talk will not appear on the internet. I'm saying that in hopes that it will. <laughs> Is there uh, any feedback you care to offer? I, I, uh, I, I, I'm very grateful that people have been coming to me and telling me that they can barely believe what I've been saying. <laughs> Are you really mean welcome everything? Do you mean be generous towards everything? That that seems so hard. You know, somebody says, how could you possibly welcome illness? It's, is that possible? And I say yes. I say it is possible to welcome illness. Of course, we know it's possible to not welcome it. Most of us know how to do that. What about if you're a doctor? I welcome illness. That's my, that's my job. Yay, people are sick. <laughs> I have some work to do. But how about my own sickness? Can I welcome it? I say, yes, you can. Bodhisattvas are sick. <laughs> and they welcome their sickness. They practice generosity towards their sickness. And they show other people how to practice generosity with their sickness. And they're careful with their sickness. And they show other people how to be careful and compassionate and ethical with their sickness. They're honest about their sickness. They're careful with their sickness. And they're patient with their sickness. In other words, they practice compassion. They grow compassion on the sickness land. They grow compassion on the field of illness, their own illness and the illnesses of those they're devoted to. This is their job. And they are practice concentration. They develop a mind that's relaxed and flexible and alert in body and mind. They, they develop a compassionate concentration. They're focused and open at the same time. And they investigate everything, including illness. And they show beings who are sick how to be playful and creative in the midst of illness by, as a result of practicing compassion. And in that playfulness, they understand illness and realize liberation together with all beings. And then they plunge back into the ocean of sickness and continue. And people say, is it possible to practice like that? I say, yes. It is possible. Really? Yes. <laughs> of course, I forget sometimes that it's possible, but I have seen people be able to really welcome illness, and it's really wonderful. Compassion boats do not move over pure, calm waters. 
they move over waters of sickness. And the compassion grows and grows in the waves of sickness. In the, the, the generosity grows in the waves of sickness. <clears throat> so we've got enough sickness, I think. All we've got to do now is more compassion with it. So once again, any feedback? Any last minute questions to forget the answers of? Okay. I have a question about um, welcoming. So um, I've been practicing welcoming a lot this time during retreat, and I'm noticing a lot of Thank like you. <laughs> two-dimensional welcoming. So I have this idea of what it looks like to be welcoming. Yeah. And in my head. But I don't. I, I was wondering if you could talk, speak more about the, the variations <laughs> that welcoming might take. I mean, and, and <coughs> kindness. Like I find um, that sometimes being honest doesn't feel kind, and I have an idea about how it is to appear kind, and then it makes me feel like I can't be honest. Like I feel like I'm st I'm really stuck there, between offering what's true, but offering it with, you know, offering wisdom, wisdom or, but offering it with compassion. Yeah. Well, the, the the issue of honesty and offering uh, sort of moves from the giving into the ethics. Right. So, let's say in your heart something arises, something you something you feel and then and then you think oh welcome this you welcome this feeling right and and then maybe you think oh i would like to give this i would like to tell someone about this feeling okay but i oh but i it might i'm not sure it would be helpful to tell them about this feeling okay so i should be careful now and so how would i be careful well one one thing that comes to my mind is you might Go ask a friend, a co-practitioner. Say, I, I had this, this feeling came up and I welcomed it. And then, I, and then another feeling came up if that it would be good to give this. I, I was generous towards the feeling when it came to me. And now I would like to give it to somebody else. Because actually it was a feeling about that person. Right. And you think I should, but I'm not sure it would be helpful. Do you think it would be helpful? And the other person might say, I think it might be helpful. So if, if why don't you keep looking at it for a little while and, and see if uh, you still feel that you want to give it and, and you see if you still feel it's helpful. Then you might go to the person and say, I have this gift for you, <laughs> but I'm not, sure, I'm not sure it's going to be helpful. It's, it's something I want to tell you, but I'm not sure it's going to be helpful, but I think it might be. Would you like to hear about it? And the person might say, 
I don't think so. (laughs) I don't think so. Maybe you should wait a while until you have a little bit more confidence in it. And you might say, okay, you actually already did give a gift just by bringing it up. Okay. So I think, I think I'd like to give the gift of asking the person if they'd like to re- receive the other gift. Okay, what if you're... <laughs> yeah, what if you're... What if you're... Your physical... Bo- like, what if you're shaking in the non-gift? You're shaking in the delusion. You're shaking in the attachment, which for me is usually arising well, as like... Are we, are we back to the first step now where, what, where the thing that's coming up is shaking? I mean, I'm, I'm saying in the moment, it's happening in the moment, and yeah. I don't have time to go to... In the moment, I have to make, I have to speak, but I can't be quiet. So mm, I, I don't know about that. Do first you, of all, some, tell me something that's arisen, that this thing that's arisen, and it's, it's, it's very intense. Okay, so I have... And, and, you, and can you welcome it? Yes. Okay. Yes. Now, now you got this intense thing which you've welcomed. Yes. Okay. Now you're not sure what to do with it. Right. So now be careful. Okay. In the moment, right now, be careful. Okay. Because welcoming it and giving it away, it's fine, but you should do it carefully. Okay. Once there was a mermaid girl who found herself a sailor boy <laughs> and took him for her own. She pressed her body to his body and laughing plunged down. In cruel happiness she forgot that even love can drown. So it's very intense, you know, and she welcomed it, but she wasn't careful and she hurt her love. So in the, in the moment we need to be generous and careful. Simultaneously. Well, almost slightly at gear. The yeah, simultaneously. Like in the in the generosity, there's care, there's caution, there's tenderness, there's gentleness, there's non-possessiveness. Mm-hmm. I welcome this, but it's not mine. Mm-hmm. And and then there's also patience. All that in the present, actually, but also it kind of goes one to two <coughs> in the present. There can be generosity and still be ethical shortcomings. But as the generosity gets deeper, you start to notice the ethical <coughs> shortcomings. Then you welcome the ethical shortcomings and work on them, and then they're relieved, and then the generosity is not only generous, but ethical. I, I have a simple example, you know. Uh, easy, easy. I have all easy examples. So, I, I have some people who could be called grandchildren relative to me. So they come up to me, and they want to put their hands in my mouth. For some reason, I didn't say, "Come here, come here, and put your hand in my mouth." <laughs> they think of that all by themselves. <laughs> They're putting their hands on my head. And then they move down my face and start going into the mouth. I, don't, I guess it's fun to put your hands in people's mouth, perhaps. So they start putting the hands in the mouth and I say, you can put your hands in my mouth, but first wash them. 
I'm okay with it, but wash them. And then they go, wash them. And they come back and put the hands in the mouth again. I say, wash them again. <laughs> and they wash them again. They come back. And now they're clean. And I let them go in there and play around. <laughs> so I, I'm welcoming them. But I'm also teaching them that, I, that I'm also being careful. And part of my welcoming is that I have something to ask of them. Mm-hmm. And there's some boundaries, you know. Mm-hmm. You can put your hands in my mouth, but you have to wash them first if you want me to like really say, you know, okay. But even if they start, I don't. I still let them experiment and find out that they need to wash their hands. What if? What if? Yeah. Let's now. <laughs> now it gets. Now it gets harder. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay but <clears throat> what if? Let's say the hand that's coming towards you. Yes. And gives you a physical reaction of fear. Yes. So much so. Welcome the fear. Okay. Welcome the fear. And then, what, and then what, what's next after you welcome the fear? Be careful. Exactly. Be careful of it. And, you be know, careful. Be careful, yeah. And that's just watching it? It's being honest about it. Right. <laughs> it's being having no ill will towards it okay because it's very easy when you you can welcome the fear but then you quiver a little bit and you slip into ill will <laughs> you know when you're afraid you're at risk of, of ill will well, or another possibility is you slip into trying to control yeah well that's yeah so being careful you're watching for ill will and control around fear okay yeah okay if you if you welcome it actually you, it often, when you welcome, it illuminates your fear. Yeah. Okay. Like the hand comes and you're already afraid, but if you don't welcome it, you don't even notice you're afraid. Mm-hmm. You just flip immediately from fear to ill will or mm-hmm. fear to control. If you welcome, it says, "Oh, I'm afraid." So now you have now you not when you when you notice the fear, you're in much better shape. But you might not even notice the fear of the hand coming. Right. If you didn't welcome it, first of all. Okay. <laughs> now you welcome it. Oh, afraid. Now you welcome the fear. Now welcome the fear. Now you can now you can be careful of it. God, this is better. It's better to work with the fear than than the hatred. Yeah. Which comes from the fear. Which it comes from the fear that you didn't welcome. Mm-hmm. Now you now you did, but you welcomed the, you welcomed the fear. So now you don't. You now you can be careful of not slipping into hatred or control, or slander or whatever. Right. Ethical discipline. Now you do all the ethical practices with this fear that you have welcomed. And now you be patient with it, so you can be present with it. And you can do that in front of well, you anybody? Have, you have to do it in front of because the, the person's hand's coming towards you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You have to do it. You don't have to say anything. You've got, you got so much to work on in yourself, you know? Yeah. This is... And, you know, again, in my easy example, their hands are coming towards my mouth, you know, and I'm, I'm welcoming them, I love them, but also I'm being careful. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm watching out for ill will. One, some people could have ill will when people put dirty hands in their mouth. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they could have ill will. Or they could try to control them. They could be afraid that they're going to get disease. Some diseases are going to come with those dirty little hands. 
a lot of, a lot of dirty stuffs on people's hands. Like you, you've heard stories about what they find on people's hands, right? <laughs> human hands are really, you know, and human mouths also. Lots of bacteria in there. We have a lot more bacteria in our mouths than dogs do, I think. So human mouths are dangerous, but the kids weren't afraid of that. And I wasn't afraid of it either. But I'm letting them go into a dangerous area and I'm letting a dangerous area come into me. Mm-hmm. But I could get into trying to controlling them. So I tell them to wash their hands, but am I trying to control them? I don't want to control them. I'm just telling them I want you to wash your hands. <laughs> if they don't, I'll deal with that. Okay. Then that's the next thing I welcome. Oh, they're not, they're not doing what I asked for. Then that's the next, that's the next story. <laughs> One of my big learnings with my grandson is he used to live in San Francisco Chinatown with his mom and I would take him out into Chinatown, which is, you know, it's like China there. There's lots of people, like a teeming with Chinese people, and lots of traffic on the streets, and all these busy shops, you know. And he wants to go into the street, Stockton Street, with all these big trucks, and, you know. He wants to go in there. I don't know why, but he does. And I don't want him to go there because he, will get, he might get hurt. So, but I also don't want to control him. I want to be compassionate to him. I want to be careful of him. I don't want to like crush him with my power, <laughs> you know. <coughs> so, but he. So I want to respect him and welcome him. Welcome this darling creature's inquisitive mind and body that wants to go in this dangerous place. I don't want, and I don't want to get. I don't want to have ill will towards him for this excursion he wants to go on. So I struggle. I, 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 I struck, actually, I tried to control him in a way that wouldn't look like control. <laughs> That's my specialty. That's your specialty, right. Yeah. But I, I failed, you know. I, I really was kind of dishonest. You know, I could almost say to him, he's such a little boy, but I could almost say to him, I don't want to control you. I love you. I don't want to control you. I don't want to crush you with my controlling power. I want to be careful of you and loving of you, but I don't want you to get hurt. He was too little for that conversation. <laughs> so anyway, Matt, he, I managed to kind of like control him for not going to the street without being mean, with, I, without any ill will, but I did sort of try to control him. I tricked him into not going to the street. So he turned and went the other way and he went into these stores, and then that was even worse. <laughs> <laughs> then I had to protect the store people from him. <laughs> Later I realized what I should have done should have gone into the street with him. Mm-hmm. That's what I should have done. I can go into the street. It's dangerous for me too, but I know it's dangerous and I know how to go into I can I can go into the street with the trucks because I know I've experience with them. And I can take him into the street with me. And I think it's it's not safe on the sidewalk. He can get hurt on the sidewalk. He can get hurt any place. But I want to be there and protect him. But I also don't want to, I want him to find out for himself. So I should have gone into the street with him. And if we went into the street, he would have realized, oh, this is not a playground. These, those trucks are scary. And he would say, let's get out of here, granddaddy. Mm-hmm. I should have gone with him. That's what the Bodhisattva does. The Bodhisattva goes with him into those realms. But they have to train. And they have to deal with their fear of, I don't want this little boy to get hurt. I'm afraid of that, and I, now I'm, I'm with that fear. Okay, now, okay, let's go. Let's go see what this is like. And yeah, it's, 
it's dangerous, right? Okay, there's enough? Okay. Let's go in the stores now. Okay. So, but that's, I, ha- I, I actually, I missed it. I couldn't do it. But that's what I aspire to, is to, if somebody wants to do something dangerous, I want to go with them rather than saying, that's dangerous, don't go there. I want to go with them and help them learn that that's a dangerous place and, and help them learn that it's a mistake rather than saying, that's a mistake? And they say to me, I know, but I have to go find out for myself. Are you going to go with me and love me? Or are you going to, ex- ex- you know? And one more story. I have a friend who, taught, who teaches poetry in prisons in California, and while she was teaching poetry in prison, she met a man and she married him mm-hmm. in prison. And she said to him, <coughs> <coughs> she told me, <coughs> when you were doing the things which le- led you to this long residence here, <laughs> could anyone have stopped you? And he said, no. Of course, he knew that what he was doing could lead to this, but he had to do it, and no one could stop him. Of course, some people said, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. That's okay. It's okay to say, don't do this. Don't do this, because then you're going to go to prison, and I, want, I don't want you to go to prison. People can say that. That's all right. It wouldn't have stopped him, though. And people did say that. He probably said it to himself. She said, so nothing could, no one could have stopped you. What would have helped you? Or what would have been helpful if someone did? He said, it would have been helpful if somebody loved me. Mm. He still would have done it. <laughs> but after he did it and saw the consequences, the love he received would help him learn from his mistakes. So we can't stop people from making mistakes with us or with themselves. And it's pretty much both in both areas we don't want that to happen. We don't want them to get hurt. We don't want them to do damage to themselves or us or anybody. But we can't, we can't control them, but we can give up trying to control them and show them that we respect them enough to realize that they're not controllable mm-hmm. and that we'll go with them on this uncontrolled trip down the river through the precipitous straits. We'll love them through it all. And we're training ourselves to be able to go with them through these rough waters and show them that somebody loves them so that they can love the water themselves. Somebody has to teach them how to practice compassion. And it, uh, compassion is not trying to control. Right. But you can still say, please don't do that. But it's a gift. It's not trying to control. I, I want you to stop this. And I'm saying this to you, and I really mean it, and I... I'm not expecting you to do what I just said, but I want you to know this is what I want. Now you know. Let's see what you do. I'll be watching. (laughs) And I'll be enjoying the horror or or the beauty of it. But I'm not trying to control you. But this is what I want. I have given it to you. Now you have it. You have something from someone who loves you. Take care of it, please. I want you to take care of it. But I do not, I'm not trying to control you. I'm just giving you myself. Mm-hmm. And I can do this if I'm dealing with my fear mm-hmm. about the situation. I can do it as a gift. But if I can't deal with my fear and I get into controlling, then I'm not practicing giving. Basically, they're not learning anything from me. 
Everybody knows what it's like to have control, people who are trying to control you around you. Everybody knows what that's like. It doesn't help you learn anything. Mm-hmm. What helps you learn is somebody who holds your hand and walk into death with you, and then walk into birth with you, and walk into... That's what helps you. You got a company, you got a friend, and the friend's not doing your job for you, but they love you, and, they're not, and the reason they're not doing your job is because they love you and they want you to learn, and they're fearless. And they're teaching you how to be fearless to go through the precipitous straits of birth and death. This is very difficult, and it's the name of the game of bodhisattvas. Okay? Okay, thank you for teaching. Heroic effort. Anything else this morning? It is still morning, I believe. (laughs) Once in a while, it's still morning. (laughs) Good morning. Or as we say in China, (laughs) Zhao. (laughs) Zhao. Chinese, Korean, what? Korean. Korean. Gantam Nida. I don't know. It doesn't yeah. Korean. It means thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you don't, know any, you don't know any nice response to that? No. Well, uh, I'll learn one for you. Um, so my question is about purification. Okay. Um, yesterday, you said that I asked you if compassion or bringing compassion or kindness to suffering was purifying. Was purifying? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And as I remember, you said no. You said um, it brings you to entering reality, and entering reality is what is purifying. Yeah. So then I was a little bit confused because you also seem to be saying that entering reality is kind of synonymous with entering enlightenment. Right. So if one... So enlightenment purifies. But what if one is not conscious of, of entering that? It's okay. Does, does purification still happen yeah. if one is not conscious of that? Well, the consciousness... The consciousness of reality is not the consciousness that you gave up to enter it. Got to sort of Wait, say that again. Mm-hmm. The consciousness that you that you've been cultivating and taking care of, you basically trying to talk that consciousness into into allowing you to enter reality. Once you enter, you kind of like check that consciousness at the door. You know, the consciousness of self separate from others. That consciousness. That consciousness does not understand reality. Hmm. Okay. You get that consciousness, you purify yourself of that consciousness. So that just happens? What happens? The purification of that. The purification happens when you, you enter into reality, so you're purified of non-reality. You're now, you're now living in the realm of reality. It's like, you know, when you're, da- when you're not dancing, 
you're not dancing. And then when you start dancing, you're <coughs> dancing, so the non-dancing is not, not happening anymore. Now you're in the realm of dancing. So when you're in the realm of reality, the mind of, of illusion is, is, is temporarily you know, set aside. Okay, can I give you a concrete example? Sure. Okay, so for example, last night I went home and I took a bath and just this huge wave of suffering came over me. And I tried to Slish practice splash it. I was taking. <laughs> <laughs> Along came a wave of suffering. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> oh, so I tried to practice with it. I, uh, I, I was very aware of it. I let it in. I, I um, allowed it. And, um, and I you're tried to be kind to it. And well, that's, you're, you're already being kind to it when you do those things. That's kindness, what you said first. Okay, so you practice kindness towards it. All right. Now that doesn't—that isn't purifying, but it gets you ready for purification. Hmm. It, it's transforming you. Your 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 deluded mind's transformed by being kind to the deluded mind. Kindness to the deluded mind transforms the deluded mind, but it's still deluded because it still believes, for example, that this consciousness is separate from what it knows. Okay, so there's transformation and preparation, and then exactly. there's purification. Yeah, and then the time comes where you see, oh, that's a, that's just totally an illusion. There's no such. I can't find. I can't. You get more and more ready to realize I can't find the separation. The more generous you are, the more open you are to maybe I actually couldn't ever actually find that I'm separate from people. You you think about that? Yeah, maybe so. And then maybe yeah, maybe so. Yeah, really, maybe so. Maybe actually, yeah, okay. And you accept it, and then when you completely accept it and let go of the illusion, then you're looking at what purifies. And then the same practices are done, but now from a purified place. For example, you don't think you're doing them anymore. They're just, just the practices. There's not you plus the practices. Because you entered the realm where there wasn't you plus anything. You know, and you warmed, you warmed your mind, which is the mind of you plus the world. You warmed that mind up. You softened that mind with lots of compassion. So that mind became really calm. And then you could say, okay, calm mind, would you consider the possibility that nobody's separate from you? And the mind says, okay. Okay, now let's look and see what's going on here. And you say, oh, that's the way things are. And then there's like not even you and the way things are, they're just the way things are. Namely, that we're all interdependent. You now, now you are interdependence, as you always have been. And now the practice goes on, but it's no longer you doing it. It's like the, what we chanted this morning, and what we chant probably, if we have noon service, what we chant then. It describes the realm of reality that isn't what you're thinking. It isn't what your deluded mind thinks, and it completely embraces your deluded mind. But it's inconceivable from the point of view of the deluded mind. And you've been purified by that inconceivable reality. And you got yourself ready to plunge into it by embracing everything. So, people, people said, and I appreciate you honestly telling me, you cannot believe that I'm talking about welcoming illness and disease and old age and so on and death. But I am talking about welcoming it. So at the end of the Heart Sutra, it says, 
In Sanskrit it says gate gate para gate parasam gate bodhisvaha, which means bodhi welcome, reality welcome. That's the end, right? It says gone, gone, gone beyond. Gone beyond what? Gone beyond any limitation in your openness, any limitation in your carefulness, any limitation in your calm. In other words, you're calm with everything. So now you can welcome everything and really welcome it calmly. Here's a big wave of suffering. Oh my God, welcome. Here's another one, welcome. Here's another one, not that one. (laughs) Not that one, no. Okay, then the doors of enlightenment close. But if you welcome everything, then you welcome enlightenment. So you could say, well, aren't you purifying yourself of the, of the resistances to it? Yeah, you're purifying yourself to the resistances to it. Mm-hmm. So when we like hack away, I don't know if that's the right word. When, hack. It, <laughs> Generously hack. And Kindly hack. You know, we try to get rid of our old habits by, and we form new habits. Yeah. Trying to get rid of old habits is one of our oldest habits. <laughs> so that's not purification, that's just... That's, um, no, that's, that's actually defilement. <laughs> Trying to get rid of old habits is, our, is, again, one of our main habits. That's addiction trying to cure addiction. We're addicted to fixing ourselves, and we're addicted to fixing our fixing and so on. That just goes around and around. We're receiving another teaching from someplace and the place it's coming from is not the realm of addiction, it's coming from the realm of purification, of liberation, which comes as a result of being kind to the addictive process. And kindness to the addictive process, generosity is not trying to fix it. It's saying welcome. There's no, there's no fixing in the bodhisattva path. There's compassion, compassion in all these different directions. There's calming with the problem, not fixing it. There's looking at the problem and then seeing, for example, that this problem is unfindable and therefore it can't hurt anybody. And then we're purified. But that teaching of how to do this is not coming from karmic consciousness. It's not coming from the addictive personality. It's coming from the realizations that come from being kind to the addictive personality, from giving up trying to control it, from respecting it. This is an awesome process. It's extremely powerful. It makes worlds. It's awesome. We respect it. We honor it. We're gentle with it. We're careful of it because it's dangerous. And then we enter through that process, a realm where the teachings of compassion came from. The teachings of compassion come from understanding that We're all in one family. There's no separation. And all the beings in the one family are subject to thinking there's some separation in the family. And again, we practice compassion towards anybody who believes in separation, which means anybody whose attachments are causing them pain. But the the compassion isn't really the, the purifier. The purifier is wisdom. And that wisdom can only be allowed to in the realm where there's lots of compassion towards delusion.
compassion by itself is not sufficient. We also need to actually enter reality. <coughs> and compassion sets us up to be willing to enter. Buddhas come to teach people compassion, but their main agenda is actually to teach people wisdom. But they, they need to show people compassion before people can open to wisdom. So they come and practice compassion, and then they open people to wisdom. And then they show the wisdom, and then they awaken the wisdom, and then they help the people enter it. That's why Buddhas appear in the world. <clears throat> And what makes Buddhas is being compassionate towards karmic consciousness. Anything else this morning? Still morning. To check your way of how about your arm? You want to check the, about my arm? No, the you mentioned in your Dharma talk in general, you mentioned your arm was cleaning yeah. house. It is is healing. You see, so yes. do you have surgery? No. Well, so I this, the arm did surgery on itself. Okay. It I bumped it, I bumped it on the wall and it broke open and all pus came out. So it's healing, very slowly. It's been taken a year. I had bursitis here, and it's not clear whether I got bursitis and the bursitis got infected, or if I had an infection that went into my bursa. But anyway, for a year I've been having this thing on my elbow, and uh, the day after Christmas it, it got very uh, painful. And uh, for the next few days it was very dramatic, and it, it's, it seems to be healing. Maybe it'll heal. And then we'll see what the next illness is be. Because I'm a bodhisattva, so I'm sick. <laughs> <laughs> and, yet, and yet I'm kind of enjoying the possibility of that maybe this sickness will go away. But I'm not in a rush because I notice that when I'm in a rush for one sickness to go away, the next one's usually worse. <laughs> so I'm just patiently, okay, you can, how's it going? <laughs> Thank you for checking. Another another request. <laughs> yes. uh, I think amazing about the Bodhisattva reunion, uh, some kind of formal ceremony about Bodhisattva aspiration to renew, renew Bodhisattva. To renew, yeah. How can amazing you were told about the form later on, but I think didn't. Can, can we request you uh, show us how to do that? How to renew, how to refresh? Yeah, and in particular for the practitioners, <laughs> when, when we do not have the physical sangha around, so how could we renew our Bodhisattva aspiration? Well, <clears throat> uh, you could choose a time it's often good to choose early in the morning because if you wait till later, 
the day might be over. So maybe like shortly after getting up, or anyway, sometime maybe before breakfast if possible, look in your heart and say, what is the most important thing in life again? What's the most important thing in my life? Look inside and see what it is. Maybe it's the Bodhisattva aspiration. If you find it, great, you found it again. And then you might, that might be enough for the day. But you might also say, uh, okay, I vow to realize, I vow to give my life for the realization of supreme awakening for the welfare of all beings. This is what I really want. You could say that every morning before breakfast sometime. You could also say, beings are numberless, I vow to save them all. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to cut through them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to learn them all. The Buddha way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it, together with all beings. You could say that every day, that's the way to renew it. And then you could also say, now I wish to practice the six training methods, or the three pure precepts. I wish to practice them all day long. I would really like to practice them all day long. I would like to practice giving all day long. If I say this, I'm now renewing my bodhisattva aspiration. And then if I would practice those practices, they don't exactly renew it. They keep it alive until it's renewed again. And then as I said before, when you get to the fourth bodhisattva training method, that's another case where you go back and check your aspiration and look at your aspiration until you feel the energy building up. You think, it really would be good to do these practices. These practices are wonderful. So I, I'm lucky because I, so-called, in my profession, is to talk to people about these practices. So I'm, I'm talking to people about these practices, and when I talk to them, I think, oh, these are good practices. I think I would like to do them. <laughs> so if you talk to yourself, you think, oh, yeah, I would like to do these practices, but you sort of have to talk to yourself about them, unless, because you know, your children don't want you to talk to them about it. <laughs> so maybe you have to talk to yourself if you're not in a sangha where people are asking you to say it to them or where you're hearing them say it. But one of the main things about lay practice, <clears throat> where, these te- where these teachings are effective, is in the precepts. So if you remember your vow, if you remember your aspiration in the morning, the first pure precept is really good for lay people because it is the precept where you remind yourself that your daily life, that your daily life is your daily life. And your daily life is really ordinary daily life. And ordinary daily life is something to, to completely do without trying to get anything. Because there's no Buddha way other than your daily life. Your daily life, there's no Buddha way other than your daily life. There can't be another Buddha way other than your daily life. If you're in a monastery, there's no daily life other than the monastery. If you're in a university, there's no Buddha way other than your job where you are at that moment. There cannot be another reality other than you doing that. 
But if you think there's another reality and you're in a monastery, you're missing the point. If you think there's some other reality in your job, you're missing the point. So that first pure precept is a precept for bodhisattvas, and it's for lay bodhisattvas and monastic bodhisattvas. Now somebody said, yeah, but it's easy in the monastery because it says on the walls of the monastery, first pure precept all over the place. And the teachers are beating up all the time if you, if you try to get anything. Whereas it, at the university, it doesn't say so on the wall. So it, it's harder to remember, maybe. But that precept is very useful for lay people. Because it says, it really says, your ordinary mind is what you should be taking care of. And you should be very careful to let go of any idea that there's some Buddha way other than what you're doing. That's not the Buddha way. I don't know what that is. But the Buddha way is, must not be different than the practice you're doing now. And what is the practice you're doing now? Is there any sense that there's any separation between that and Buddhahood? If so, let go of that. But still, it's good to remember your aspiration every day because that practice is for that aspiration. Okay. Can I ask you a question? Sure. When you were, what, 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 you're look, while you were looking over at Catherine, for some reason you were looking at Catherine? Oh, because I was say a uh, lay practitioner and I, I don't know maybe I mistake she she's one of those other people no I don't feel <laughs> so but I just in terms of practice she may be had a different setting just a different setting yeah but now she's not living in the monastery now she's living in Pittsburgh and she works at the university and she's you know and she's uh, writing She's doing a lot of writing, uh, creative writing, and uh, and she's on the internet looking at uh, people destroying Pennsylvania. That's where she's living, and she's trying to remember. She's trying to remember this precept all the time. So she's doing. We're, we're all trying to remember these precepts, and we forget sometimes. But then, as I say. Asanga teaches the essence of bodhisattva precepts is receive the precept from another. Again, if you, have a, if you have an addictive mind, you do not receive instructions from the addictive mind about how to take care of the addictive mind. You receive precepts from somebody else, from the Buddhas, from the awakened ones. They give you a precept and you aspire to it. And then if you fail, you feel sorry, you feel regret, you feel embarrassed. If you don't remember to check your vow, you aspire to remember your aspiration. If you, don't, if you forget your aspiration, you fail because you aspire to remember. You, for, you forgot to remember, so you feel sorry. You're doing the practice if you feel sorry. You forgot your aspiration. You failed. You feel sorry. You're doing the practice. I forgot my aspiration. I failed. I'm sorry. I 
during the practice. I remembered my aspiration. I'm not sorry. I'm happy. I remembered. I remembered. I remembered. How wonderful. I do sometimes remember. And now I want to put it into practice. How wonderful. This is our this is the pure and simple color of true practice. This is the true body of faith. This is the true mind of faith. Okay? Anything else this morning? <laughs> Is there an expression in English called, I don't know him from Adam? <laughs> Is that how it goes? <laughs> what does that mean? I don't know anything about him. Huh? I don't know anything about them. Okay. Can you talk about the relationship between compassion and generosity? Uh, well, for bodhisattvas, actually, for, I think for all of Buddhism, the first aspect of compassion is generosity. It's, it's the first step on the bodhisattva practice of compassion. And the next aspect of compassion is ethical exercise. And the next aspect of compassion is patience. <clears throat> and the next aspect of compassion is aspiration and generating heroic effort to continue to practice compassion. And the next aspect of compassion is concentration. Bodhisattva concentration, and then you're ready for wisdom. So is wisdom the same as compassion? It's a little different. You can be compassionate towards delusion, right? You can be in delusion and compassionate towards your own delusion. In wisdom, you actually have now entered reality. So wisdom is like being able to accord with the way things are, to actually be, in, to be able to be in accord with space because you're so willing to embrace all chunky suffering. If you're open to all concrete misery, if you're open to that, you can open to vast ungraspable, unstoppable, unhindered, limitless truth. That's, and then that's wisdom, that, that, that according with reality, including and beyond everything, that's wisdom. But the two are united in the awakened mind. But there can be compassion Without fully, without wisdom, it's possible. Fortunately, because if there can be compassion, there can be wisdom. So we who are not yet wise can be quite compassionate. And part of compassion is to receive precepts from a place of wisdom. 
to receive the precepts from the wise ones and practice them. Gets us ready to join the wise ones in reality. Which we have a habit of being afraid of, you know, and making reality into something that we can grasp. We have that tendency. We make a story of reality because we we can't stand the nakedness of the city. And if we do that, we should be compassionate to ourselves and everybody else in the city who's making up a story about the naked city. And if we're compassionate to everybody else and ourselves, we all will get ready to face the nakedness and enter the reality of the city and then continue the practice with more purity and enthusiasm. Our aspiration becomes purified once we enter reality. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.